0: This is the L2 Capital Podcast with hedge fund manager, Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Fred Hickey, editor of the famous newsletter, The High-Tech Strategist. I've been following Fred for a few years now, and he has been very critical of this bull market. His specialization is, as the name of the newsletter suggests, technology. But over the past few years, Fred has been following the gold market very closely. So Fred, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome.
0: Well, thank you. Uh,
1: Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Could you please let us know what the High Tech Strategist newsletter is and what new subscribers can expect to get from it?
0: Well, we've been writing it for 32 years now, actually starting our 33rd year uh, this month. And uh, what you can expect is 8 pages every month at the beginning of each month that uh, looks at the world from an independent view, because I'm an independent person here. You'll get uh, usually a macro overview, depending on the month, uh, you'll get got a lot of technology updates. And also, I uh, usually cover, cover the precious metals markets. I do that. It used to be in the first two decades, I was all tech. But uh, starting in the 2000s, early 2000s, actually, I realized that I needed to protect myself from the central banks who had been intervening in markets even in the late 1990s into the early 2000s. And I told myself then that uh, it was likely that we were at a secular know uh, with a tech bubble, which I had foreseen. In 2000, that 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 was going to be a secular decline in tech, but gold, which had been in a secular bear market for 20 years, would be the place to be, and it turned out to be that way. Now, I couldn't have imagined back then that I'd be seeing, you know, 10 plus trillion dollars of money printing. Quantitative easing really didn't exist very much at the time. Never could have imagined 13 trillion dollars of bonds with negative interest rates. That uh, never happened before. And, and all of the uh, attempts to um, prop up markets that we've seen since. So I've been involved in this gold market a lot longer than I thought I would be. Because of the 2000s were a lost decade for stocks, as called you know tech stocks in particular and uh, the gold market was in a great bull market I believe that secular bull market began in 2000 and it hasn't ended that we had a a correction in the middle of it uh, in recent years and and now that uh, now that has uh, bull market has resumed. Brilliant.
1: We're gonna talk about gold soon but um, could you please share with us uh, your views on technology stocks at the moment? Sure. They were expensive late last year then the market crashed down and now it's back to to good old days at least apparently right?
0: (laughs) That's the Consensus and it, it, the consensus, as always, is wrong. In my opinion, we had uh, another bubble here, and it was uh, as a result of the central bank actions. Uh, we had one in 2000. We had one in, in 2007. We have another one here. If you look at overall market valuations on a market cap to GDP or price to book, price to sales ratios, those were all at one of the top three highest levels in history in the U.S. And uh, the other two ended in crashes. In on in some some. Measure, Measurements, uh, median price to sales, we were way above the all-time high in 2000, in fact, 2x times. So this is a very dangerous market, a very dangerous bubble that hasn't been allowed to unwind yet, but uh, things are deteriorating. Uh, even with all of the actions of the central banks, now the Fed stopped printing a few years ago. But when they did that, the ECB and the Bank of Japan took up the slack and more, tasked the baton, and and so we were we were hitting record highs of money printing throughout uh, right up until last year. And it wasn't until October of 2018 that the net amount of quantitative easing went to zero. The Fed was, uh, by then, tapering, pulling money out at $50 billion a month, and uh, the ECB had cut theirs back. So right now, we still have reductions in QE. The Fed is still taking out tens of billions of dollars, at least until September. Maybe they'll stop that early, but for the moment, they're still pulling back. Uh, The Fed also had nine interest rate hikes the effects of that Q, of that uh, qt they call it quantitative tapering and the rate hikes are usually felt in a lag, and uh, I, I think we're seeing those effects. We're seeing it in a global economic slowdown, uh, more pronounced outside of the U.S., but even within the U.S., uh, there's there's certainly been uh, weakness. Uh, we saw it in the in the lagging employment numbers last month, but, w- but within, you know, if you look at auto sales, auto sales are down, home sales are very weak, uh, even smartphone sales and you know, technology-type products, uh, industrial production has weakened. Around the world, we have a global slowdown. It may be already a global recession. Certainly, that's the case in global trade. Certainly, that's the case in in manufacturing. Uh, we have 70 countries with PMIs now below below the 50 level, which indicates contraction around the world, uh, and that includes major countries like uh, like Germany. Uh, China is clearly in a slowdown, uh, second largest economy in the world. So things are happening. Uh, the stock market in the U.S. hasn't re- hasn't really reflected all of what's happening, and uh, I think we're set up for probably a very difficult rest of 2019 as a result of the lagged effects of the tightening that's occurred around the world, but more specifically in the US. Even when they start cutting rates, and there's talk that that will occur uh, next month in July at the, at the July meeting, Fed meeting. As we saw in 2000 and as we saw in 2007, the rate cuts, there were 13 of them in 2000 to 2003 timeframe. They didn't work. The market broke on average about 50 percent at that time. And then also in 2007 and 2008, there were 10 rate cuts and they didn't work. The Fed is at this point is pushing on a string and um, you're not going to get consumption up when the consumer is in difficult straits. In auto sales, we, we, we see declines here in the U.S., but over the, the whole world, uh, European, uh, China, really bad. There are 15% declines here every year in sales in China largest auto market in the world. But in the U.S., we're seeing declines as well, even with these low interest rates. But they're not really low because uh, car credit rates are at record levels, 18%. So the U.S. consumer is feeling the the effects of these, even though relatively small rate hikes and personal income payments have risen quite a bit. And in order to be able to afford a car these days, they have to go 84 months out on lending terms. Uh, They they borrow over $30,000 on each car, record amounts. So they're stretched. Consumer is holding... Up here, but it's very weak. It's not the case in industrial market. Um, you know, in semiconductors, we're in a recession. We're in the deepest downturn in the semiconductor market, both the U.S. and the world, since the 2008-2009 2000 global recession. So things are, are not good, and, and they're not reflected in the stock prices, which which still remain high. So I'm expecting that the Fed rate cuts will not work, that the slowdown will will continue and worsen, and uh, you're going to get a recession. We haven't had a recession in 10 years in the US. This is now tied for the longest time without a recession, and they're necessary. They're necessary to cleanse excesses, and we have plenty of them.
1: Okay, and and so you mentioned excesses. Uh, Where do you see the real malinvestments being made today? Is it cloud semiconductors?
0: I see it everywhere. But you, could, you you're certainly in semiconductors, and that's led to price crashes. Uh, you know, in the in the commodity memory areas, we're seeing twenty percent declines sequentially every quarter now. Uh, it's the greatest glut I've seen. I've seen a lot of cyclical downturns. This is the greatest glut I've seen maybe ever in semiconductors. Way too much overcapacity. Only now are they talking. We had Micron report large memory, U.S. memory maker report, and and they're only now beginning to cut a little bit of capacity. They are sitting at 150, uh, unprecedented 151 days of inventory, 4.9 billion dollars. Just uh, and that's it's that way at Samsung and at Western Digital and uh, all too much too much capacity. And so semiconductors certainly we have too much, but also I see it in uh, in the unicorns that are out there that get
1: funding, where they some of them lose more money than they have revenue. Fred, I, I was I was even going to ask you, th- does a company have to burn cash today to get some money? Because you see, Uber, Lyft, WeWork, Pinterest, and, and and Tesla, which well, we are obviously going to talk about later on this podcast. But it looks like the more money you lose, the higher your valuation.
0: It's uh, it's craziness and not anything I've ever seen. I, I live. Through that bubble, I knew in 2000. I knew it was a bubble, but th- in some ways, it's greater. It may not be as as many companies IPOs coming out, but same percentage of losing money, 80, over 80 percent. And the numbers, uh, the amounts of money that they're losing is is nothing is unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, we have all of these bike shared bike companies and scooter companies and uh, and and meal delivery, hundreds of those, and all sorts of all sorts of these companies, all of which have one thing in common: they're all losing money. And they could do that because the central banks had come in and and have suppressed rates. The price of money, which is in interest rates, is wrong. And as a result of that, you have malinvestment everywhere. Everywhere and every almost every industry. Uh, it's much broader than what than just the tech area that we saw. Where it was fiber optics and uh, we have we we have cloud capacity. It was internet hosting in 2000. It's now cloud capacity excesses. So they've cut back on their even though they're the high growth company. They've cut back on their uh, building and their orders to semiconductor companies, for example, and other component makers. Uh, it, it capacity is everywhere, and it's uh that's the result of 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 the central bank actions and the fact that they've been going on for so long.
1: Interesting. And, uh, so uh, do you think that passive investing has played an important part in inflating this bubble?
0: I think the Fed is primarily responsible and the other central banks, but uh, but I do believe that passive investing is very dangerous. And the reason is, is people don't really know what they own and it pushes money into a, a smaller and smaller number of very large stocks. When they're rising, they really don't know how, what valuations they really have. And when they fall, and we've seen this now, We've seen the market break down a few times already. We had a big decline in October, uh, and we had a a worst crash since 1931 in December, worst December since 1931. Uh, We had another one in May. And it seems that when we do get these big declines, it starts to feed on itself. And it's, uh, if you own an ETF, uh, you don't know what's in it. You don't know what the valuations are. All you know, two things. One, it's either going higher <laughs> and it will continue to go higher or it's going lower. And, uh, and I, know, I don't know when that's going to end. So you get these great movements in fear and greed, uh, much larger than you would have had, you know, individuals been invested in uh, specific stocks where they may know uh, what, what they, own. They, they might own. they know they own assets and capital and you know, cash and receivables and all those kinds of things. They have no idea when you're, deal- when you're dealing with ETFs. So I think this downturn that we'll see uh, will be accelerated by, uh,
1: by the ETF movement. Interesting. So as per your letters, you believe we are at the top of the market, right?
0: Yeah, I think we've been in a topping process since January of 2018, and we've gotten some nominal new highs. But uh, broadly, if you look at this latest rally where you went to, again, a a nominal new high in S&P, it's not been confirmed by the transports, which have declined here recently and not anywhere near the top. Certainly not confirmed by uh, the broader market like the Russell's, the Russell indexes. And even semiconductors, which usually lead, are down, although they're still up in the air crazily. Uh, but they're still uh, they're no are still nine percent off the highs.
1: Okay. Do, do you think that the market might uh, crash soon, and, and why they, why markets haven't crashed yet? Well, they haven't crashed
0: yet because of intervention by the by the central banks. So you've had promises by Draghi uh, recently again that he'll essentially do whatever it takes in his remaining months until September. Um, that they're willing to go back to QEing again. Uh, and that they'll take all measures. And then the Fed came in and also did their pivots, uh, where they went from raising rates to, uh, and, and rate hikes this year to, to rate cuts, and as soon as maybe a half a point in, uh, in July. And so that has given confidence that the Fed and the other central banks have investors' backs and when they have that confidence it's it's a false confidence but when they have that confidence uh, it holds the markets together but it is breaking down the economy is worsening and earnings are no longer growing double digits as they were last year they're falling they fell in Q1 and they're going to fall for the rest of the year as well so eventually you can't hold that up if, if the market if the economy is falling sliding into this global recession earnings are falling and the valuation gaps are getting even larger and we know that Interest rate cuts don't work. Certainly, most recently in these bubble periods, they didn't, and they're not likely to this time. Eventually, people will figure out that the Fed doesn't really have their back. They may try, but they don't. And when that happens, then you have uh, then you have a little panic moment, and then we'll we won't get a crash like we. I don't think we'll get a crash like we saw in 2000 or in 2007 or eight because they'll come in with more more money printing, more QE. Uh, no doubt about it and in the us i wouldn't be surprised to see ne- the negative rates that we're seeing in japan and europe um they're desperate they'll do anything they believe in their they believe that uh, more the more insanity more insanity is the is the uh- <laughs> And more debt, which is the big, which is the big underlying problem here, as a result of their easiness, that'll eventually be successful if they do enough of it. So I don't think it'll be a crash because the Fed will come in and intervene again, but it'll be a significant downturn. Um, you know, maybe 30% before they uh, really come in aggressively. And the other thing is, is that yeah, you know, Trump is, takes President Trump takes great credit in the stock markets, and he's always uh, doing a lot of cheerleading of the markets as well. And there's a lot of people that want to believe that things
1: will go on forever. Is the ban on Huawei going to benefit or hurt some specific companies? What what do you think the most likely outcome will be?
0: Yes, well, the ban will certainly hurt Huawei, uh, has hurt Huawei, which has been an amazingly fast-growing story. It's the poster child of technology success in, in China. You know, for example, last quarter, um, they grew their smartphone sales over 50% in a world and, and became number two in the smartphone world to so Samsung in a world where smartphone sales were declining, where Apple sales unit sales were declining 30%. In network wireless telecom equipment, they're number one in the world. Now. And China is seen as a great threat to the U.S. The U.S. has taken these steps to try to um, slow them down. One of them was the ban on on Huawei. They are Huawei is still dependent upon U.S. technology, although they have had an initiative uh, where they were going to build their own semiconductor industry, and they're putting in tens and tens of billions of dollars to do so. And had some success, but they don't have all of everything just yet. Um, certainly not what the U.S. provides. So cutting them off. Uh, hurts them a lot. And um, they can lose share in smartphones. And people like Ericsson can pick up share in the telecom equipment area. We'll see what happens tonight. I know that many in the U.S. believe that Huawei is an arm of the military in China and that they, they should be punished for uh, various ag- aggressions that they've made. And President Trump also sees it as a bargaining chip uh, in, a, in, in a way to make a deal. So there, we don't know which way it will go here. If they are Given the same kind of treatment that ZTE did, which was the number two telecom equipment company in China, which also had a ban on them for a while, then uh, Huawei can continue to prosper. If they continue the ban, then Huawei will will be in difficult straits, and there will be uh, an opportunity, for, at least for a while, because the Chinese will continue to become a more more of a power in the technology world over time. But if they are allowed to uh, continue on, they'll do all right. If they're if they're constricted. If they do not have the access to US technology, their business will be in some trouble for some time. Okay.
1: And uh, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrencies? Do you think they are a. Uh, uh- the child of this uh, insanity we are living today in the financial market. Yeah, that's what
0: I think they are. We had Beanie Babies in the late 1990s, you know. Um, they are always these delusive objects that, are, that come around when you have bubbles. And uh, I understand the, the libertarian concepts behind it, but I don't see it as a store of value. I don't see it as a currency when you see the kinds of fluctuations, when you go to a couple of thousand to 20,000 and then back to 3,000 and then back to 13,000 and lose 3,000 in a minute. Minute and a half or it was this past week, there's nothing there. There's nothing tangible. And so it's very difficult to price these things. And that makes it not a currency and it makes it not a store of value. The other problems I have is electronically, uh, you know, we see the theft that goes on in so many of these uh, cryptocurrencies, huge amounts of money. They can't seem to secure it. And I don't think even Bitcoin will be secure when you consider that uh, there have been great strides made in quantum computing. Uh, they'll break those codes as well. So I don't, I don't see. There's nothing tangible there. They always use a picture of a gold coin to as a symbol of Bitcoin, but there's nothing there. And it seems to always go up with the market. And when the market's going up, it goes up. And the, when the market's going down, it goes down. So it's not a. It doesn't act like gold or silver, which usually does the opposite of the stock market.
1: Sure. Well, I know you have done a lot of work on Tesla and together sure. with cryptocurrencies, um, Tesla might as well be the representative of the, uh, this whole insanity. A company led by a guy with a solid track record of never turning a profit on its companies, always propping up the next big thing, being it uh, cool cars, batteries, solar panels, affordable electric vehicles. And and then now more recently, autonomous driving, robot taxis, etc. Yeah,
0: millions of robot taxis on the roads. Yeah. And you know, anywhere, or anyone, anyone that is involved in in the industry knows that that's not just not possible. I know. And nor nor is populating Mars right now. <laughs> but these are the kinds of uh, futuristic dreams that he spins, and uh, you know, a symptom of the times. People are willing to believe anything. They're willing to believe the markets will never decline. They're willing to believe that uh, you know that the the central banks are all powerful uh, and. And and know what they're doing when they clearly never know what they're doing. They're always wrong. And they can believe people like Elon Musk. It's uh, it's uh, a great example. And you can see that that is now breaking down, too. It's been a very bad year for Tesla because things have worsened so much. But I think if we were still in a a market that was that wasn't unbreakable, uh, I think Tesla wouldn't be down. I think it's uh, you're seeing these cracks in the markets and you're seeing the cracks in Tesla as well. Interesting.
1: And uh, how one should invest today in a world where there is no yield and some stocks and bonds are very expensive? If there is a crash, you, you already mentioned that the Fed will come to the rescue, as it has done um, every single time in the recent past. Do you think that would prop up the bubble again? Well, first of all, I'll answer where to go. I think, um, you know, personally, I'm
0: involved a lot in the precious metals heavily. I think that's a place to be. Um, we'll get into that later. But uh, also, I think uh, it's not a bad idea to have some cash, but not too much because you have the debasement of the currencies going on around the world. And then because I th- believe that the that the negative rates will get d- more deeper in Europe and in the U.S., they may, uh, we'll probably see them here, uh, that means that uh, short-term treasuries will uh, will suffice as well so uh, a combination of cash bonds short-term U.S treasury bonds uh not, nothing else not corporate bonds not uh not junk bonds and not long-term bonds well long-term bonds you could in the treasury maybe because if rates go negative they'll they'll do very well and the precious metals that's uh that's how I am positioned cash short-term treasuries and uh, precious metals so uh, you know I think that's that's the safest place in a market that uh, is uh, very dangerous now I think they could reinflate a bubble. This is a, And this is why it's very difficult to short in, in, in uh, money printing environments. Uh, nominally, prices can go higher. Uh, we've seen the best stock markets in the world were Argentina and Venezuela in recent years, Zimbabwe before that. The currencies collapse, the economies collapse, but stock prices go up. If you are shorting, <laughs> you will do very poorly in money printing environments. There are only moments, windows of opportunity where I think we are in one now, where the, where the in the Fed's case, they've actually been tightening quite a bit. And so the markets will, will feel that. But uh, for a longer term, it's not going to work because uh, they will keep pushing up prices, cutting up prices. And so that means that some stocks will work to hold their value somewhat. I think precious metals do a better job of that, especially now when stock prices are so high here. But obviously, if you own, if you own things of value, you know, very strong companies with uh, products that don't get obsoleted, pay dividends and that kind of that sort of thing uh, they'll uh, they'll hold their value for you better than just cash over the long term
1: because you're you're at the risk of uh, obviously debasement Sure, sure. Yeah, if they keep printing money, inflation might appear, right? Well,
0: we have lots of inflation, it's just not in consumer inflation so much. Now, I don't believe the CPI numbers or the PCE numbers that the Fed uses, because I know my costs of living are up a lot more than what they report, and I know the various techniques they use to suppress. they made many adjustments to the CPI, for example. Um, they do all of this hedonic deflating, I mean, according to them, the price of a TV is $15. Um, it, and they do the same thing with computers. They say all these quality improvements affect the inflation rate, so they reduce it. They take out spike, spiky items. And But I look at my own personal situation and I look at health care insurance soaring and taxes increasing all the time. All insurances that I pay, tuition costs for the kids. Soaring virtual, you know, food prices. Uh, I get smaller candy bars and bags of air and chips. Uh, there's all sorts of inflation that's, but it's probably, it's still single digits probably. But however, we have asset inflation. So the inflation that we've had has gone into, you know, when you print money and it goes to the high end, which it does. If you're buying, as the Fed was doing and the ECB and BOJ, you're buying assets. It's people who own assets that will benefit from that inflation. They're seeing the inflation in all things, whether it's artwork or collectibles or, or stock prices or bond prices. And so the inflation has been there now. The problem is, is that you've now created this humongous wealth inequality gap, which is probably the greatest of all time, if not at least equal to the 1920s here, but I think it's worse and getting worse by the day. And so what you – what eventually you have, end up having uh, – this, this gap gets so great that you end up having social disharmony. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it in uh, the debates that are occurring here in the U.S. Um, where uh, they're talking about redistribution of wealth. And there's talk of modern monetary theory, which is also redistributionist. And so the next time the Fed does QE, it could very well be helicopter-type money, which means it doesn't go just to the high end. They aren't just buying asset prices, inflating asset prices. It then goes directly somehow to the consumer. And the consumer will use that money to buy goods. And you'll have too much money chasing goods. And that will lead to consumer inflation, and because there's so much money that's been built up on the sidelines, and the velocity of money has declined so much, that's just a big, uh, big pile of sticks that gets lit up if you start having uh, inflationary tendencies building, and I think that would happen. So that's the risk. I think monetary theory is the key to starting the inflationary, consumer inflationary flames.
1: No, interesting, because uh, well, as you mentioned, uh, eventually this will all filter through to the average consumer, and the Fed will have a very difficult decision to make: whether to keep printing and kill the U.S. dollar, or, or raise rates and kill the bubble economy. Two,
0: two ugly choices, and yeah. so far, every choice has been to keep inflating. Uh, usually, what happens is is that the population will realize they're getting they're being boiled by the with the inflation, which is the cruelest tax and then they'll demand that they stop. And when you that happens, then, then you'll have some massive okay. uh, depression.
1: So, uh, well, we, you, you mentioned before that the Fed is propping up this bubble and uh, there is easy money uh, and gold is starting to go up now. What has made gold underperform uh, in the past uh, few years and what has to happen to make it go up in the future? And are there any stocks you like at these valuations? Let's say uh, New Gold, Barrick, Agnico Ego, Gold Corp, Kirkland.
0: Well, uh, you have to go back to 2000 where we were in that bear market. And um, we went up from $250. I was there. I was there. I, I had never been a gold bug, so-called bug. I never owned a coin until 1998. I first bought my first coin. Then I never owned any gold stocks. I was only tech at the time and but you went up from 200 250 dollar at the bottom all the way up to 1900 over 1900 enormous rise and it was overdone and when that happens um when that happens you'll get a correction and uh, there were a number of other factors there um the fed was doing some tightening um uh, the dollar strengthened uh, so you ended up with a correction it went on for a few years Uh, I think it went on a little longer than one might have expected because – of uh, traders who uh, on the futures markets who are playing ranges and uh, some cases we've seen now they've been caught manipulating prices. So um, they have a lot of clout because of the amounts, enormous amounts that they trade on the paper markets as they call them. So when we got up to the, I should say, we stuck back, we bottomed in, in December of 2015 at 10.50 in gold. We've been rising since, we've been in a bull market since. Coming out of that 2015 bottom, we had a big spike up. It went to 1365 or so, and then it backed off. And then we went through a three-year period where every time it got up to 1350 to 1365 or somewhere around there, it would get battered back by these Western-based traders uh, who would use enormous leverage, 30, 40 to 1 leverage. Uh, and then they would buy at the bottom as well um, when it when the corrections uh, ended. Now, as this was going on throughout all of this, huge amounts of gold were going moving from west to east. Every year so people in China who hadn't been allowed to buy gold uh, but are are now all over the world excluding particularly in the e- uh, in the east they were buying gold and uh, we saw the etfs in the. US Gld one the U- Gld based one get almost cut in half um that most of that moved from we know that it, we know we could track the bars that went from out of the Gld etF into the Swiss refineries and then refined them into the Chinese form the 0.999 purity, and then move move from Switzerland and to China and elsewhere in the East. And so all that kept shifting. And then central banks, who started to lose confidence in the U.S. and other central banks, I think they started buying very heavily. Uh, and they've been buying several hundred tons per year. Last year was the highest in decades. So they bought 651 tons estimated, and this year they're expected to buy over 700 tons. And so all this money has been, all this gold has been being acquired. But while in in the U.S., there has been nothing but outflows. So those traders would keep hitting the prices when they get up to thirteen fifty or sixty, and then buying it and, and making money trading it. But all along the, the market, the real market, the physical market, was tightening, 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 and we saw that in what was lower throughout this 3 year period higher lows on the price of gold so each time they would come in the, the traders would come in and whack whack gold it would go to, it would go down to a, a higher low and we saw this series of higher lows whereas we would stop out at the, around the 1350 to 1365 level until just recently you know where the higher low was so high that when we went up we went up and through and that was last week. It seems like a year ago, but it was last week. And then the market exploded higher into the 1400s, which didn't surprise me because there's no ownership of the metals in the in the in the U.S. Particularly, we know that institutions have no ownership. We know, as I said, that the ETFs in the U.S. have seen outflows. And by the way, the ETFs overseas have seen inflows during that time. Um, There've been lots of buying in the ETFs that are based in Germany, Italy, Switzerland, UK. They've all seen increases while while the U.S. had seen outflows. And so in addition to Asia and Turkey, China, India, Russia – uh, all our buying, you then had all of the, you also had a lot of buying coming in from Europe in recent. So the market tightened, 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 and then exploded higher. And so I think we've broken out of that range. And now um, how high we go from here uh, remains to be seen. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones, the great trader, said that once we broke 1,400, we very quickly could see 1,700. And that wouldn't surprise me at all, because I think the prices were suppressed by those traders. I don't think they were doing it. I don't think it was a cabal. I don't think it was in concert with governments, as many of the conspiracy theorists think. I I think it was just traders that were playing this game. and uh, But now that's exploded and it, it, we're starting to see a rush in. We've seen some inflows into the G- GLD ETF. We haven't seen individuals uh, pick up their buying. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was looking at the U.S. Mint numbers. We sold only 3,500 one ounce Golden Eagle coins in May and again in June. That's just 10% of what they were buying, for example, in in 19 in 2016. There's been no pickup by individual buyers. There's no pickup in poor man's gold called silver, which individuals usually gravitate to. Yet silver is still lagging gold. The silver to gold ratio, the gold to silver ratio, is at 93, is extraordinary levels, uh, indicating to me that uh, individuals aren't in. Also, in, within the miners themselves, you're not seeing uh, much activity in the juniors. You're seeing it. You're seeing these big movements up here in. In the, in the majors, and that's because the uh, some of the institutional players and some of the big money guys. You know, we've had so many of them, from Paul Tudor Jones to Drucker Miller to uh, Sam Zell, who has never bought gold before. Um, these big players have moved in, but it but it's very early stages, and uh, the individual investors haven't haven't even started. As for miners, um, I, my favorite, I guess, would be uh, Agnico Eagle. It is a very well managed company. Uh, during the downturn, they conserved their resources well. They never over, like so many other management's in the business. Uh, when when gold was peaking at 1,900, they didn't go out and make stupid acquisitions. But then they did make acquisitions nearer the bottom, and they've been going through a transition phase. And now, uh, really starting this quarter, you're going to start to see some production increases coming in. Um, they have two big mines in Canada, Mealydean and Amruth, that are. One has started commercial production in this past, this current quarter, and the other one starts in Q3. So for the next few years, Agnico is going to go be a almost a senior or a senior that will be showing production growth, which is very unusual because the gold, the, um, the new months and the bar, uh, barracks of the world will not, they'll be shrinking. So Agnico is going to be a um, production growth company, but also they had cut their costs back a lot. They're going to see great capital expenditure reductions when these mines are completed, so that they're gonna see the biggest increases of cash flow of any other mining company. And they've already talked about you know reducing the debt, which is not very high, really, uh, but uh, reducing the debt, but more importantly, they're going to be in and they've been paying dividends for decades. So they never had to, re- they never had to eliminate their de- dividend. They had reduced it, but they never eliminated it. They're so well-managed, and uh, it's going to be, uh, I think, one of the go-to stocks among institutional investors as we go forward into this. Point. I mean, I like Kirkland as well. It's gone up so much. I was fortunate to have gotten in at six and a half, two years ago, and it's, Seven times that almost six and a half, seven times now. But I still think there's more to go there. It's a little riskier because it's a little pricier now. But I think they're going to have huge earnings in the next couple of years, and the determinant there will be uh, proving out the resources and reserves uh, they have done in Fosterville, in Australia. So I think it will continue to do well. It's it will be the momentum stock. It is the momentum stock when you go up as much as they have in uh, what has been a difficult period. It becomes a momentum stock, and and so that's the momentum favorite out there. I like a. Uh, Uh, Another one called Pretium, it's a single mine, Uh, really started production about a year and a half ago. Uh, undervalued, uh, selling at maybe half of what its net asset value is. It has something to prove. Um, they, it's a very high-grade, low-cost mine. They've been in, they've been generating lots of cash and very strong earnings, but uh, there are questions as to what the re, what the mine life is. Um, they're doing some drilling at what they call the flow dome zone that could increase the, the life of the mine by doubling it, and uh, they will also be producing uh, in the second half of this year. According to management, they'll be producing at very much higher grades. I think when that happens, happens, then stock could really get going. So I like that one as well. And uh, another one would be Alamos Gold. It's selling below book value. It will be another another company that will be a growth story. Now, remember, there isn't a growth story in gold production because there hasn't been much money put into um, exploration or development. In fact, it's collapsed. And so we've not had any fines, really any major fines of significance in the last decade or or so. And grades have come down and production is declining uh, a little bit. It's pretty flat right now, but it started to decline and expected to decline overall. So if you have growth companies here, um, those will be exceptions. And Agnico will be a growth company, and Kirkland's a growth company, and Pretium is a growth company, and Alamos will be too, although it isn't right now. It's really a 2020 growth story. In 2020, their flagship Young Davidson mine, um, they're tying in an underground mine to an upper mine, and when they do that, they will be more efficient and they will have uh, greater tonnage flows, and that means more gold and lower costs. And so that happens in the, probably the first quarter of 2020. In addition, they have a mine in Turkey that's a low-cost, uh, relatively high-grade mine uh, that's coming on in, in the later part of 2020 as well. And another mine, uh, Cerro Palon in Mexico, that also will be coming on and will provide higher grades. So that will turn that company into a growth story as well. So I like those four. I can give you more, but that, that's, uh,
1: that's for starters, huh? For sure. Thank you very much. Now, uh, some valuations are sky high. Interest rates are extremely low. We all know that. Uh, In your opinion, what are the risks in the market now that people are not paying attention to? I don't
0: think people understand that the Fed is tightening. All we hear is the Fed is about to ease. I also don't think that they understand, like we talked about, that, that the Fed isn't omnipotent. they don't understand that massive rate cuts that they made, and those were 500 basis, not 250 if they go to zero here, uh, that even 500 basis point cuts didn't work. I think they have too much faith in the central bank. They should understand that the central bankers have been wrong on everything. They foresaw none of the bubbles. They didn't know there would be a housing crash. They didn't know it was a tech bubble. I knew there was a housing bubble. I knew there was a credit bubble. Uh, Many others uh, understood that as well. Lonely voices at the time and lonely voices now. And here we are again with another. Another bubble where the Fed is clearly wrong and they will be uh, they will be unable to stop the declines until they get really aggressive with quantitative easing. But I think that you can't get there from here without some pain. They're not going to be doing. It'll take time. They'll have to cut rates. They won't work. And they might not do get to going to QE until the market's down a lot. And I don't think people understand that they're debasing currency. Uh, I think they think that the dollar is fine. It's been stable for a long time. They don't. They don't understand that uh, this is what the central banks are doing, and and that their all of their hard-earned wealth, uh, that hard-earned money and savings, uh, could go up in flames.
1: I think those are the biggest risks for investors right now. Brilliant. Okay, Fred. Listen once again. Many thanks for for talking to me. Thank It's, you. it's a pleasure. And uh, and congratulations on the on the newsletter. It's an excellent one. Pleasure here too. Thank you, Fred. I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. I- If you like this podcast,
0: feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.